Just come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no more. Cause we long for your presence, Jesus. Come all you sinners, come find his mercy. Come to the table, he will satisfy. Taste of his goodness, find what you're looking for. Cause he's the reason we came. Yes, you love for God so
God, you are so good. And your goodness can be seen throughout history, throughout your word. But even in our lives, Father, in our times of doubting, let these words be a reminder of your grace. So church, today we sing a new song that celebrates his goodness. Would you let these words resonate in your life and proclaim truth this morning? Hallelujah. All throughout my history, your faithfulness has watched beside me. The winter storms made way for spring. In every season, from where I'm standing, I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life, all over my life. Yeah. I see your promises in fulfillment all over my life.
your firm foundation, Lord. On Christ the solid rock in which I stand, yeah. Because Christ, it is you alone where our hope is found. We place our faith and our trust in you. Can we let it be known this morning, church? In Christ alone, my hope is found. Yes, he is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, is here in the love of Christ I stand. Yes, this is our reality. This is our cry. We proclaim truth today. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till Me from his hand till he 
returns, Lord calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Cause here we are, Lord, here we are, standing in your goodness. Well, let our feet be planted on the solid rock. This firm foundation that is your grace, Lord, because you're worthy. What a God who loves his creation so much that he was in his one and only son to pay the penalty that was ours. We should be the ones on that cross. Jesus, we owe you our everything, our whole heart, our whole love. We offer this worship to you because you are worthy of every breath on our lips. God, how we long for more of you. How we long for your presence. And we thank you for a place like this, a sanctuary, a safe space, God, where we can come before you broken and humbled and before a perfect Savior. We can lay down our burdens. We can lay down our grief. We can lay down our doubting and our anxieties. And like a good father, you are there. You lead us towards redemption. Father, we thank you that your arms are open, that you are for your sons and daughters. We worship you in this place. It's a good day to be in your presence. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Welcome to church this morning. It's a good day to worship God. Amen. Well, hey, you all look very well-rested today. Would you turn to your neighbor and ask him how much sleep they got last night? That's really loud. I apologize, but it's not my fault. Who enjoyed their extra hour of sleep? I did. If you're a parent, I know that you have some thoughts in your head right now, and I'm totally fine with that. Uh, I, I really did enjoy my extra hour of sleep. Uh, my name is Tyler. I am on staff here at MRCC. I'm Extremely lucky and grateful to be here and just to serve in any way that I can. And this week, I get to give announcements. So uh, coming up tomorrow is Band of Brothers. Uh, this is for guys only. It's just a time of fellowship and a meal. It's completely free. Last week, I announced uh, Sisters of Strength, and I got the food completely wrong. But it was still good. Um, and so I specifically asked what we were eating tomorrow and I'm not going to tell you, so you just have to show up. But it is tomorrow at 6.30 in the sanctuary. We hope to see you there. Uh, starting today, going through the 14th, so next Sunday, is our Operation Christmas Child 
all of the boxes need to be in by next Sunday. Uh, you can see them out in the foyer right now. They're packing them all up and moving them into that trailer. Uh, next week is the final day that we can drop them off. If you need to drop them off throughout the week at the church office, you guys are more than welcome to do that. Coming up on November 20th is the Christmas light installation. It is from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. So I'm a firm believer in letting each holiday have its own time. So I don't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. But this was the, the time and day that we have available to set up all of the Christmas lights for the big show that we do every year. So uh, the 20th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., uh, come and join us. We have uh, food, uh, breakfast, donuts, coffee, pizza, and you just come and you get in a, assigned an area. If you're a daredevil, you can get up on the roof. If you're not a daredevil like me, you can get on a ladder, and I will be on the ladder. Uh, tonight is uh, another young adults worship night. It's going to be here in the sanctuary. Pastor Darius has a team coming in so we can all just come together and enjoy worship. And Pastor Grace coming up to bring the word. I looked it up. It's Matthew chapter 16 if you want to open your Bibles. Actually, it's Matthew chapter 22, but that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> He's a goofy little guy. He usually sleeps through first service, so he has no idea what's going on. But, uh, no, thank you, Tyler. Thank you very much. For I am his, and he is mine. And here in the power of Christ, we, we stand, we live. Oh, church, don't, don't um, let yourself lose your awareness of that. You and I belong to a Father God forever, not because of our power, but because of his. Amen. Amen. It is good to see you. It's good to be back. Uh, Ron and I were gone the last couple of weeks uh, for our anniversary. Huge thanks to Pastor Darius for bringing a terrific word last week, Pastor Zach the week before, the staff, everybody for stepping up, and, and you for letting us go. Uh, some friends in the church gave us their condo for several days over in Chelan, so we were over there. I think we were the only people in Chelan in October, but, uh, uh, but we were there, and that was great. And then uh, some other friends took us last night to the Ducks-Husky game, which turned out pretty good, I think. Um, but not for the reason you think, actually. Uh, our friends, uh, they have season tickets that are under the covered area. So, so we were sitting there, and like from the next row all the way down, everybody was soaked, and we were dry and warm. And I, God loves me, I thought to myself. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, it was fun. It was good. Friends, um, God calls us uh, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, calls us his sons and daughters and, and gives us the right to approach him in prayer. And, and it behooves us to pray for our nation in this time. So can I ask you if you would bow your head and pray with me, join with me in this moment. God, we thank you this morning for all the blessings you've filled our lives with. Most of all, what we just sang about, your grace and your power that keeps us in your grace. We praise you, we worship you, we thank you, we exalt you this morning. You're the king, you're the Lord, you're the master, and we're grateful for that. And, and Lord, you, you teach us that we should pray for our land, and so we do. We come and pray that you would bring healing in our bodies and healing in our souls, Lord. That you would do what only you can do which is restore our fellowship and our love for one another. Bring us out of this time of trial. We remember that you said trials would teach us perseverance, and, and that was a precious thing. And, 
And you taught us that these light and momentary afflictions create a great eternal weight of glory. And we know that you're working in us and through us. We also look for the end. Bring healing, we pray. And then this morning, Lord, as we open your word together, help us to hear you. Uh, you teach us that your voice is that, that still small voice that speaks from within. Give us ears to hear your voice this morning. We pray for that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we're going to begin, friends, a, a short series this morning, just for the next few weeks. Um, but it is one that is near and dear to my heart. Some of you are aware, about 10 years ago I wrote a book uh, called God Sick. And, and what we're going to talk about over these next few weeks is, is what I talked about in that book, which lies at the very center, the very heart of our walk with Jesus. It's kind of a weird phrase, God Sick. We're going to share what it means and what it means. Uh, says to us this morning. Matthew chapter 22, I hope that you're in the habit uh, of bringing your Bible, whether it's on your phone or old-fashioned, whatever works for you, but to have God's Word in front of you as we study God's Word, the Holy Spirit will use that in your life. That's a great habit to get into. So Matthew chapter 22, we're going to work down into chapter 23 this morning, but but let me begin by by asking you this. Do you know what a, what a heroic failure is? <laughs> Are you familiar with that phrase, a heroic failure? A heroic failure is when, when somebody sets out to do something good and then they sort of fail to accomplish that along the way. They accomplish something, but maybe not what they set out to do. When I think of heroic failures, my mind always goes back to when I was a, a young husband, just a couple months married, and I wanted to show my wife that I was the man of the house, that I would take care of the manly things of the house. And this was in the days when you still took care of your own car. You changed the oil, you serviced the transmission, all that kind of stuff. You did it yourself. So Rhonda was getting ready to go on a trip, a long trip to visit family. She was going to be driving. And, and uh, so I said, honey, I'm going to get your car all ready. I'm going to take care of everything. She went to work that day. I said, take my car. Uh, uh, I'm going to get your car all ready to go. And so I set out to service the transmission, change the oil, uh, uh, you know, make all the adjustments, rotate the tires, do all that good stuff. And the problem was that while I knew how to do all those things, because my dad had taught me and I had always owned old pickup trucks, well, hers was a new foreign car, newish foreign car, and I had never worked on one before. And so I made a bunch of assumptions that turned out to be heroically fails, okay? So what I did was I got underneath her car and I drained what I thought was the crankcase that had the oil in it. But actually on her car, it was reversed, so I drained the transmission completely dry, all the fluid out of it. Not really paying attention, I put the, 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 uh, uh, the, closed it up again, and then I went back and I added five quarts of oil. So now her car has 10 quarts of oil and no transmission fluid in it. I finished all the rest, rotated the tires, cleaned it, spick and span, it's ready to go. She came home, I said, you are ready to go, my bride. She went out and turned her car on, and the most god-awful noise came out of her car. It's like a crashing train because there was no fluid in the transmission. Giant plumes of blue smoke came out of the back because there's 10 quarts of oil in it. She looked at me and said, thank you <laughs> for getting my car ready for the trip. I remember feeling like such an idiot. We actually had to take the car to the shop. They had to fix it. It cost a lot of money. I heroically failed. Lots of us have heroically failed from time to time. If you come to our house and you use the bathroom, you'll find a little book there that's called The Book of Heroic Failures. It's by a guy named Stephen Pyle. 
and uh, it's full of fun stuff. I thought I'd share just a couple of those with you. Heroic failures from history. For example, there's the most unsuccessful animal rescue that ever happened. During 1978 in London, there was a firefighter strike, so the army mobilized to take care of firefighters' duties. An elderly woman called and said, my cat's stuck in a tree, kind of a cliche. But uh, the army jumped in their rig, ran out to her place in order to rescue her cat from the tree. And they did, and she gave them big hugs, those handsome young men that were helping her with her cat and passed around tea and cookies. The guys jumped back in their truck, and when they drove away, they ran over her cat. (laughs) A heroic failure. At least in some people's eyes, right? Uh, You know what I'm saying. Or or, or there was the least successful robbery, or one of the least successful. In 1977, a thief in Southampton, England, hatched a plan to rob a grocery store with, at that time, what was one of those newfangled locking cash registers. You know, you can't get into it unless they open it for you. So he grabbed a couple things, walked up to the counter, plopped down a 20-pound note, and uh, waited for the clerk to open the cash register. Then he grabbed the whole cash register and made a run for it, which is a pretty good plan except that there was only 11 pounds in the cash register, so he put down a 20, ended up down 9 pounds on the deal, uh, and eventually went to jail for it. In 19, heroic, heroic failure. In 1968, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents put up a display at the National Fair talking about workplace safety, which was great, except that a couple hours after the fair began, the display collapsed and injured three people who ended up going to the hospital. How about that? I like this one, just a couple more. In 1976, a man took a, a, a commercial flight uh, here in America, and halfway through the flight, he stood up, pulled out a weapon, and abducted a flight attendant. And uh, in the middle of all that chaos, the pilot came on and said, Sir, you know, what is it that you want? Why are you doing this? And he said, I want this fl- plane to immediately go to Detroit. There was a long pause Then the pilot said, sir, this is a flight to Detroit. (laughs) And it was, in fact, a flight to Detroit. So uh, he was arrested when he got there, and that was the end of that. That's a heroic failure. Maybe maybe my favorite one, being who I am, is the story uh, of how the Soviet Union in World War II trained dogs to carry anti-tank mines in harnesses on their back. And the plan was... When the Germans attacked, they would release the dogs, and the dogs would run under the tanks, and the mines would blow up. It's hard on the dogs, but you save human lives. So it was a great plan. The problem was that all the training was done with Soviet tanks. So when they released them, the dogs immediately went after the Russian tanks, (laughs) put a whole regiment in retreat. Lives were lost. (laughs) Heroic failures. Our lives are filled with these. And the reason I bring this up, friends, this morning is because God says that we are sometimes capable of heroic failures as believers. And really, that's what God's sick is all about. It's when we set out to honor God, to live out our love for Him, and we completely miss it. And that happens quite often. Jesus actually spends a a whole chapter, Matthew 23 in your Bible, talking about how this happens, talking about how he feels about it, and talking about how not to go there. I remember the 16th century Bishop of Aragon who said this. He said, I have no fear that the church of Jesus Christ will ever fail. 
My only fear is that she will succeed in things which do not matter. <laughs> yeah, that's a heroic failure. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 writes about the Jews of his day, the people of God in his day. And here's what he says. He says, hey gang, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among those who aren't believers, because of you. In other words, you've lost touch with something so important and so significant that even though you think of yourselves as the people of God, you are in fact in danger of having the kingdom of God taken from you. Jesus warned the Jews about that explicitly in Matthew chapter 21. He said, unless you produce the fruit of the kingdom, it will be taken from you, it will be torn from your hands and given to those who will. Now, that, that's a poignant moment because the people thought of themselves as doing the will of God. But as Jesus revealed, they were mistaken. And th this, this, this uh, struggle, this dilemma, this conflict is at the heart of the story of Jesus in our Gospels. It's a story of his running battle with the religious who thought of themselves as doing God's will, but who were actually opposing God, who didn't even recognize the Son of God in their midst, and who as a consequence found themselves opposing him. It is a tremendous irony that it wasn't the, the secular atheist crowd that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the religious crowd. It was the temple uh, population. It was the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who said, crucify him and give us Barabbas. We think that it's better to follow Barabbas, a terrorist, in a, as our way of following God, than the Son himself. And that reality got really personal for one of our favorite characters in the Bible, Peter. Maybe you remember the story, and this is Matthew chapter 16 that Tyler was talking about. The scripture says that Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed there by them, and on the third day raised to life. Imagine what that felt like to hear if you were Jesus' friends. What? You're going to go allow unjust men to cause suffering and persecution to you, and then ultimately death? What? Peter was somebody who had devoted his whole life, who had left everything to follow Jesus, and now he hears Jesus saying this, and his reaction is easy for us to understand. We would have felt some of the same thing if we'd been in that moment and found out that the one we love was headed for unjust suffering and death. The scripture says that Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. And he said, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're the son of God. You're the savior. You're our teacher. You're our master. You're our leader. May this never happen to you, Lord. Stop talking about it. It's easy to understand what Peter was feeling when you think about those you love maybe facing something like this. But Jesus' response to Peter, friends, is powerful and poignant. 
he turns to him, and listen to what he says. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Raise your hand if you've ever been called the devil by anybody before. <laughs> I mean, this is a tough moment. And, and, and can I just say to us that, that Jesus cares way more about the health of my soul and yours than he cares about your feelings in a moment. He does. Like the best mom and dad, he knows that sometimes saying a hard thing is infinitely more loving than saying a loving thing. So he turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who thought of himself, has sold out for Jesus. But Jesus diagnoses him as what I call God sick. And he says this, Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. You're in my way. You're hindering what I'm doing. You're getting in the way of what God is doing in the world through me. You're a stumbling block to me, Peter. Because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. God's sick is when we become so focused on the things of men that we lose touch with the things of God. And it can happen to the most well-intentioned among us. Peter was certainly that. He loved Jesus. But he had forgotten that Jesus had been saying for a long time, I'm going to the cross. He had forgotten that Jesus had said to him many times, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. And come after me. He had forgotten that Jesus had taught him, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, then you'll save it. You see, Peter had forgotten all those things. So all he could see in this moment was the things of men. And Jesus, because he loves him, confronts him and calls him on the carpet about that. How does that happen to somebody? How does a crowd in one week go from saying to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when Jesus entered Jerusalem, to a week later on Easter weekend saying, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. How does that happen? That's God's sick when we lose touch with the things of God because we're so caught up in the things of men. And that's what for the next few weeks we're going to explore in God's word. We're going to listen to Jesus talk to us about this reality because it's not what any of us wants. It's not what Peter wanted. And yet it's what happened in Peter's life. So let's start at the end of chapter 22 of Matthew. And over these next few weeks, we're going to move through chapter 23 as well. Here's what the scripture says. The Pharisees got together, the leaders of the church, the synagogue, what we would today call the church. The Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus, with this question. He said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? That is a great question. Life is filled with moments when we have to decide what's most important. Over and over and over again, we're confronted with that. Uh, you know, you're dealing with your teenager and they've gotten out of line. Is this the moment for discipline or is this the moment for mercy and grace? 
You know, you're dealing with your, your spouse, your wife, or your husband, and, and is this the moment when you take a stand, or is this the moment when you don't take a stand? A woman's caught in the act of adultery. Is this the moment to stone her? Is this the moment to forgive her and set her free? Over and over and over again, our lives are filled with moments when we have to choose between priorities. There's only so much of us only so much time in the day, in the week, in our lives. Somebody say amen. And we're always choosing how to spend that time, that energy, those resources. And we're always trying to find what's most important. This man's asking about that. And Jesus knows it's the greatest question. So he gives a straight, square answer. The scripture says, Jesus replied, the greatest commandment, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, learning to love God, not because he needs it, but because we need it. And then Jesus said, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbors yourself. In other words, he says, yo, there's not just one answer to this question. You know, if you get into the, the scholar aspect of this, the expert in the law would have expected Jesus to say, love the Lord your God. He wouldn't have expected the second one. And the second is like it, Jesus says. The language means alongside it. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then in case the point's missed, Jesus says this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything else you and me know about God depends on this. All the law, to put this another way, if you get everything else right and get this wrong, you've completely missed it. It doesn't matter what you got right. By the same token, get this right and everything else wrong and you pass the test. You pass the test. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Don't mistake what Jesus is saying here, friends. It is the absolute epicenter of his heart for us to understand what matters most. Now, when we get what matters most out of whack, when we get the wrong things first and the right things last, that's where God's sick comes in. And in chapter 23, Jesus is going to lay out some specific examples of what that looks like. But, but let's not hurry past this. Think of yourself as a mom or a dad. You have a lot of goals in, in your kids' lives. But one goal is more important than all the rest. No matter what else you succeed at, you want to succeed at them knowing you love them, right? You want them to know that. And when you do hard things in their lives and when you do easy things in their lives, when you bless them, when you have to discipline them, in every part of that, what matters most to you, honey, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you. And, and, and if they grow up and go on to a life in which they do all the, the things right that get them ahead and that bless them, but they don't believe you love them, you would be the first one to pronounce yourself a failure. You see, it's with that heart that Jesus speaks in this moment. He says, Greg, here's what I want from you more than anything else. I want you to love me, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Get that right, Greg. And it doesn't matter how many other mistakes you make. 
get that right. And you're in the center of my will. I'll never forget my first day of classes in Bible college when I was preparing for the ministry and we had just started school and uh, Dr. Dan Pakoda, uh, the dean of the New Testament at Northwest University, he always insisted on teaching the freshmen their very first classes. It's great wisdom on his part. And the first day in class, he said to us something I'll never forget. He said, gang, I know you're here to study to serve Jesus. So he said, I want to teach you this first and foremost. He said, here's God's will for you. Love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. Now, hang on a second. (laughs) There's two parts to that sentence. Don't mishear me. Love God with all your heart and then do what you want that flows out of that. Jesus is saying that here. He says, All the law and the prophets, all the other stuff depends on these two things. Let let me flip that script over a little bit. If what you think you know about God causes you to hate people, you're wrong about God. You don't know what you think you know. (laughs) Because the truth about God is that what's most important to him It's to love him and love your neighbors. Let me ask you this morning, does your faith cause you to love people or hate them? Does your faith cause you to love your enemies or hate them? The real faith causes you to love them. Does your faith make you angry or compassionate? Does it make you patient or impatient? You see, this God-sick thing strikes at the very core of who we are. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 that the acts of the sinful nature, the worst part of us, are obvious. Hatred and discord, fits of rage, dissensions, factions, and the like. The apostle writes, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can't. Because it's the opposite of those things. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of God's heart being your heart, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Yeah, that's the evidence that you are in touch with the real God. If your faith leads you somewhere else, It's because you're God-sick. Why? Because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I listened to a public servant in an interview this week, and this public service was sharing about the dozens of emails he had received from people who disagreed with his decisions. One of them that he shared, they were all of the same flavor, but one of them that he shared stuck out to me. The email said, be sure that you pray for your family because in the name of Jesus, we're coming to kill all of you. In the name of Jesus? That person thinks of themselves as doing God's will when nothing could be further from the truth. And to them, Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In Jesus' day, the faith of many of the Jews led them to hate. They hated the Romans, the Samaritans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. 
people struggling with infectious diseases like leprosy, people struggling with sin like lust and greed, basically anyone who didn't agree with them on everything. And here's the thing, gang. They were technically right about a lot of issues. They were technically right about the sanctity of marriage. They were technically right about the the corruption of the government. They were technically right about the danger of watering down God's word like the Samaritans did. But they were wrong about the most important thing. And so Jesus says, you're missing it. You're completely missing it. You know, to put this another way, love for God and love for your neighbor is kind of like true north on a compass. You know, when I was in the Marines, they taught us to navigate by a map, and and they would give you a compass. Well, not having any background, I sort of thought, well, somehow the compass is going to point the direction I need to go. That's not what a compass does. What a compass does is always tell you which way is true north. Once you know that, then you go to your map and you can figure out where you want to go. So the compass doesn't exactly tell me what to do all the time. It does tell me what's the right direction so that then I can figure everything else out. That's what the greatest commandments do for us. Once we understand that they're what's most important, then we can make all our other decisions well and wisely. So after Jesus lays this on this answer uh, on the expert in the law, He goes into what we would call a tirade in in chapter 23 of Matthew, a long talk about the practical every day of what he just said. And and listen to what he says. Uh, Chapter 23, verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, Hey, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. In other words, these guys, even though they got a lot of problems, they're the leaders, they're the authority, you need to respect that. But, he says, don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. And then he lays out six very specific things. First of all, look at verse 4 of chapter 23. He says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, the church crowd of that day constantly created burdens for other people. The fundamental of the expression of their faith was this is what God demands. But the fundamental expression of the gospel is this is what God does for you. And then the demands are our response. And the Pharisees had it exactly backwards. And so they created what we call God sickness. Verse 5, Jesus went on. He said, everything they do is done for men to see. In other words, the religious crowd in Jesus' day had made image more important than substance. They cared about their reputation more than anything else. And can I just say to the next generation, you need to understand this because there has never been a generation more tempted to choose image over substance than yours. Yeah, what everybody thinks of me, that's what matters the most. That's what the Pharisees... How much of the energy of your life is consumed protecting your reputation? Yeah, for a lot of us, it's most of it. But what that creates is... Is, is a belief that somehow our reputation matters more than who we really are. Jesus' reputation in many circles was awful. They said he's demon-possessed, he's crazy, he's sick, he's a heretic. Boy, you name it, they accused him of it. He didn't manage that. He didn't try to constantly repair his debt. He continued to do what was right and good. He wasn't hung up on what men see, but on what's real. 
And then in verse 15, here's the one that just gets me, gang. The one that just stabs me in my heart ever since the first time I read it. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, Jesus says to the the crowd of his day, he says, you'll travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You are passionate about missions, about evangelism, about sharing the gospel. Boy, you are a go-getter. You'll travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Whoa! See, sometimes we're tempted to think that that zeal, that intensity, that drive to bring people to some particular expression of the gospel, that's the proof that we're the good guys. Jesus says, no, no, you can have all that zeal and so little knowledge that all you really do is recreate sons of hell. Man, this came home to me when I was a young believer, just a few months old in the Lord. Boy, I was telling everybody about Jesus all the time. And I worked at a, a naval hospital in Bremerton, and one, one day I, was, I cornered a guy in the hallway, one of my fellow sailors, and, and I, I was sharing the gospel with him, and I was really pressing him on it. And he turned and said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, Greg, I don't just want to be another notch on your belt. And then he walked away. And I stood there and thought, well, that wasn't what I was trying to do. But the way I was trying to do it created a heroic failure. Jesus said that was going on in spades back then. You travel over land and sea and then make them sons of hell. Verse 16 and following, Jesus said, you blind fools. Here's the fifth thing. He says, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? In those days, the Pharisees were so hung up on money that they talked about it all the time. They made it the center of everything. Today, the same thing goes on. The whole prosperity gospel lie is everywhere. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 tells you that as soon as anybody says that godliness is a means to financial gain, you know they're a liar. It's part of our discipleship, but being religious Knowing God is not how we get rich. But the Pharisees were saying, yeah, it's all about the money. And then Jesus, at the end of his tirade in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 23, he says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. He said, you tithe your spices. <laughs> I remember when I was a young believer, do I, do I tithe on my net or my gross? How do I figure out exactly to the penny what God wants me to give? <laughs> Very often, people will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm trying to figure out. I remember we pastored in a college town, and students would come to my office. How much do I tithe on my student loan? Stop it. It's a loan. You don't tithe on that. You strain out a nap but swallow a camel. He said, you tithe right down to your spices. You go to the grocery store, and you take everything, and you divide it, and you take a tenth, and you give it to God, and you think that makes you great, but you're neglecting, catch this phrase, the greater matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's a vivid word picture. I remember a man shortly after I became a pastor for the first time, the church we served as just a young pastor. He was the first guy that came to my office after I became the pastor. And he, he came with a big grin on his face. He said, Pastor Greg, I'm so excited to tell you that I've received a calling from God for my life. I'm, I'm supposed to go to Russia and be a missionary. I was like, wow, that's amazing. He said, so in order to do this, I need to divorce my wife and abandon my kids. 
No, no, wrong answer. You're not hearing God. You're hearing your flesh. You've got things turned around. You've got the wrong thing first and the right thing last. No, 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 my brother. Now I look back and I realize that what he was dealing with was God's sickness. Now, we've only got a few more minutes this morning. We're going to explore this the next few weeks. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, there's all this God's sick going on. So he says, verse 33, Therefore, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and teachers. Therefore, I'm going to seek to change your mind. I'm going to seek to teach you. I'm going to seek to grow you. But he says, you know, most of them you're going to kill and cast out. Most of them you're going to reject. He says, but understand, I'm sending them to you. A hallmark of God's sickness, catch me, friends, is, is when we come to church or we come to God in our Bible study or devotional, whatever, and we come seeking only to be affirmed in what we already know. You see, Jesus has never done teaching me. And the longer I walk with him, the more he teaches me. There never comes a moment when I say, oh, I got it all, God, I'm good. I don't need to learn anymore. I just need to be affirmed in what I already know. Peter thought he was getting close to that point. And then when he expressed himself, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're, you don't even, you're not even in touch with what I'm doing. Friends, let God change your mind. As you get older, let Jesus grow you. You, you don't know your whole faith at 20, 25, 30, 35. No, God's going to keep teaching you. He's going to keep sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. And he's going to invite you to learn from them, to let your mind continually be renewed. You didn't learn it all in 1985. Yeah. Well, what's the common thread in all this? The common thread is that the Pharisees at every point were using God to get what they wanted, reputation, power, money, and control. And as a consequence, they were completely missing God. It reminds me of a story that Timothy Jones tells in his book, Awake My Soul. He tells the story of taking his six-year-old daughter to an audition for a professional production of The Wizard of Oz. And it was a big production. There were 50 parts and uh, almost 300 kids who showed up to audition for the parts. And after several long hours of auditions, his daughter was rejected. She didn't get the part. She didn't get a part. And so as they drove home together in the car, she was tearful. And she said, Daddy, I don't understand. She said, the kids who got parts didn't behave right. I was quiet like I was supposed to be. I did what I was told, and I didn't get a part. Daddy, I was the good girl. How come I didn't get a part? And Timothy said, as I listened to her, I understood what was happening. She was trying hard, but in the wrong way. She thought that what the directors wanted was submissive obedience, stiff attention, frozen alertness. She didn't understand that what drama directors are looking for is energy, emotion, loudness, authenticity. They wanted kids who can be themselves with abandon. Yeah, they didn't just want robots doing what they were told. And this is so important, and we're going to get into this in the next couple of weeks. We're almost done. Because in John chapter 15, verse 15, on his last night on earth, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I no longer call you servants. I don't just want you to do what you're told. I'm looking for way more in your life, Greg, than mere obedience. He said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because a friend knows his master's business. 
Because a friend is in the game. You know, the difference between a friend and an acquaintance is, is when a friend calls you up and asks you to move, you hate them for it, but you help them. <laughs> Friendship goes a step beyond. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus is saying this because he knows what they want. And he knows they're not going to get it by mere obedience. And neither will you, and neither will I. God's sickness is when we just think God's there to tell us what to do instead of there to involve us in what he's doing. And that's what he wants for us. That's what he seeks for us. Now, you might read all that and think to yourself, well, Jesus is mad at them. He doesn't like them. <laughs> You'd be wrong. Listen to how he ends his tirade, verses 37, 36 and 37 of chapter 23. Jesus, after saying all this, after, after issuing all these challenges, here's how he ends. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks. See, here's the last truth about God's sick people. God loves them <laughs> passionately. And his desire for Peter in that moment was not to drive Peter away forever, but to change Peter's mind and heart, to get him back in touch with the things of God before the things of men. And see, that's what he wants to do with you and I. We get so caught up in the things of men, and they have their place. But the things of God are infinitely more important. Your love for God and your love for your neighbor matters more than every other agenda or cause in your life or mine or ours or the whole world's. And when you remember that, you become a different kind of person. Let me tell you a story, and we'll finish there for this week. Max Lucado writes about a, a big, violent man named Daniel whose brother swindled him in a business deal. And when Daniel found out what had happened, he became so angry that he vowed that if he ever saw his brother again, he would break his neck. And people believed him because of his history, because of his background, because of who he was. He believed himself. And so from that day forward, he resolved to never be anywhere where his brother was. Since they lived in the same city, that took some doing. But he devoted himself to avoiding him in every situation because he was afraid of his own anger. A year later, though, Daniel met Jesus and became a Christian. And his life began to change. But that anger was still deep and raw. And about six months later, the inevitable happened. He's walking down a busy city street. And up ahead, on the next block, coming towards him, for the first time in a year and a half, he recognizes his brother. His brother doesn't see him, and they're coming towards one another. Daniel says, I felt all that rage come up. I knew my face had turned red. My teeth were clenching. My fists were clenched. As we came towards one another, I thought, oh, no, this is going to be it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt him. As he got closer and closer to his brother, though, his brother's still unaware, 
As he got closer and closer, he said something supernatural happened. He said, for the first time in my life, I noticed how much my brother looks just like our dad. Suddenly, I could see every line of his face that was just like dad's. His posture, his walk, the tilt of his head. All of a sudden, all I could see was my dad. And as we got closer and closer together at the last minute, his brother looked up and the two of them saw each other and their eyes locked. And they rushed together and threw their arms around each other and stood on the sidewalk weeping while the crowd walked by wondering what was going on. What would have happened to Daniel in that moment? He remembered something more important. He remembered something that mattered more. And that's what Jesus wants to do for us, his followers. That's why he calls us on the carpet about this God-sick thing. He says, do you have in mind the things of men or the things of God? And our answer to that question makes all the difference because here's the thing. God wants to give that kind of hug to everyone in the world. Those on your side, those on the other side. Your enemies, your friends, all lost people. He wants to hug them. He wants to make them his. That's what's most important to him. The Son of Man came, Jesus said, to seek and to save the lost. So as we close this morning, as we get ready for these three-week journey we're on here, let me ask you, what are you most focused on, the things of men or the things of God? Jesus wants you to call your attention back to his mission because that's where you'll find yourself. That's where you find his presence. That's where you find intimacy with him, closeness with him. So is your heart consumed with the things of men or the things of God? Jesus says, I want to cure that fever in your life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Maybe as you sit here this morning, you would say, my whole life is about the things of men. I, I don't know God. I've never received Jesus as my Savior. And this morning, he offers himself to you right here in this moment. He said whenever two or more of us would be together, he'd be in our midst, and he's here for you. Maybe your whole life has been about the, the things of men, and you realize it's leading nowhere, and you've never turned to God and said, God, I, I need you to be my Savior. I need you in my life. I need you to be my dad. You can say that right here and right now in this moment. He'll hear your heart. He's been seeking you your whole life. Wants to throw his arms around you and call you my daughter, my son. And that happens in the moment when you turn to Jesus. You can do that right now. Go ahead. He can hear your heart. Maybe you did that a long time ago. Like Peter. You gave your heart to him a long time ago, but somehow since then, your attention has been distracted from the things of God. You no longer think of carrying his cross. You no longer think of following him and giving your life away. You no longer think of loving him and loving your neighbor. Your Savior wants to call you back. He wants to remind you that this is a friendship, and he's looking for more from you than just obedience. 
And he invites you to put your heart on the things of God again. Maybe you need to do that right now. Go ahead, you can do that. Your father's listening. You can talk to him. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Sometimes we look at Peter and we see ourselves. God, deliver us from being consumed by the things of men. Bring us back into the center of our friendship with you. We pray for that. Send us from here different because of it. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Yeah. The most important thing in the world happens inside of us. It happens in that moment when you turn to Jesus. So now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this day. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon.